This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Swinburne Astronomy Online, the world's longest-running online astronomy degree program. Visit astronomy.swin.edu.au for more information. Astronomy Cast, episode 251 for Monday, February 6, 2012. Messier Objects. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. My name is Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today, and with me is Dr. Pamela Gay, a professor at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. Hi, Pamela. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Fraser? I'm doing really well. I think the weather's starting to improve. Things are getting uh, nice and sunny. It's good. That day, you know, spring in January is just plain wrong. Yep. Spring in February is still mostly wrong, but uh, yeah, I have to admit my bulbs are starting to come up, so this is a very odd year. That's good. All right, so have you ever looked into the sky and noticed a fuzzy blob? That's a Messier object, carefully cataloged by Charles Messier to make it easier to find comets. We'll learn about the history of the catalog, Messier's criteria, and some of the prominent objects that you might see. All right, Pamela. So this I've done this. I've rediscovered many of the Messier objects all on my own. Eighth Light is an agile software development company. They craft beautiful applications that are durable and reliable. Eighth Light provides disciplined software leadership on demand and shares its expertise to make your project better. For more information, visit them online at www.eighthlight.com. Just remember, that's www.thedigit8 T-H-L-I-G-H-T dot com. Drop them a note. Eighth Light. Software is their craft. All right, Pamela. So I, I've done this. I've rediscovered many of the Messier objects <laughs> all on my own. I used to, I used to do that. I, I would go outside, look up, you know, really dark skies. And where I grew up, we had just beautiful dark skies, great big Milky Way. And especially in winter, the sky just pops. Yeah. You know, you get out there at like midnight, one in the morning, and it's just amazing and then what i would do is i would look around and look for stuff just off sort of that i couldn't quite see that there was something yeah. there and you you would see it out of the corner of your eye and then you'd look over and maybe you wouldn't see something and then you'd look away again and you'd see this fuzzy bit yeah and sometimes it's not even required to use off-axis viewing yeah, it's I, I keep rediscovering the fuzzy blob in the center of cancer. That's my special ability. What, which one is that? I, I uh, See, this is the problem with I constantly rediscover yeah. it. I believe yeah. that one's the beehive. Right, right, right. Right. And so what you do is you you look at these, you know, you, you would look at these blurry things and then I would pull out my star chart. I had a nice, beautiful, uh, I have night watch, by the way, if you want. My w- number one recommendation for a, uh, a like a book that lists all of the objects in the night sky yeah. and how to find them. I love Nightwatch. Um, so I had that book and I would look at it and find the object and, and I would be discovering, oh, that's, you know, the great uh, galaxy Andromeda. Oh, that's the um, uh, the great nebula in Orion. And so, yeah. as you said, for a lot of these things, you're rediscovering them. And these are the Messier objects. And and if you ever have, have seen a comet with your own eyes, you know, that's something completely different and you need to keep them straight. So, so let's learn about Charles Messier. He went, so when, who was Charles Messier? 
Charles Messier was a French astronomer who worked in the late 1700s, early 1800s. And he's, like many of us, someone who, as a kid, just had this moment of, oh, my God, astronomy is so awesome. That's what I want to spend my life doing. And for him, that moment of complete awesome was the great comet of 1744. He was 13 years old when it went overhead. And this was an object that ranks as one of the top 10 brightest recorded comets. It at one point was reported to have six different tails. It was visible during daylight. It was just this absolutely amazing phenomena that impacted him as a teenager. So he went on to actually become an astronomer when he was an adult. And one of his first logged events that he recorded was actually a mercury transit when he was in his early 20s. And and so he set about trying to find comets. Right. So back when he was working, we were still trying to figure out this whole observational astronomy thing. There were planets, understood planets, then there were stars, and then there were fuzzy things, and we had no clue what the heck all these fuzzy things were. And the real way to make a name for yourself was to discover comets, because well, there's always the potential they're going to get bright enough and big enough that you that everyone can see them. Then, of course, your name ends up in all the newspapers. It, it was a good way to become a famous human being. And so Messier, among many other things, set out to discover comets. And over the course of his lifetime, he actually was able to discover 13 different comets at different points. Uh, one of them, he shared the designation with his assistant, Mecham. Another one actually ended up getting named after a different observer, Lexel, but it's unclear which of the two was actually the person who should get all the credit for it. But the problem with, with trying to be someone discovering comets, and this was a problem that William Herschel and his sister Carolyn also dealt with, was Comets start out looking like little tiny fuzzy patches on the sky. And lots of other things look like little tiny fuzzy patches on the sky. And so the only way to tell if you've discovered a comet or not is to wait for the fuzzy patch to move or to have a catalog that lists the fuzzy patch for you. Right. And so you could imagine if you're just getting into this hobby that you would point your telescope in the sky, you would scan the skies, you would find a fuzzy bit, and then you would go, ha ha, comet. And then somebody would remind you that, no, no, that's always been there for, you know, as long as people have been watching the sky, back to the drawing board. And so right. I guess he wanted to just cut out this whole problem and, yeah. and build just, a catalog. Just fix it. And fix and it. so this this is where working in, working in France, he developed his northern hemisphere-centric catalog of fuzzy, annoying things to him, objects on the sky. And because he was working when he was working, all of these objects are extremely bright. And everything in the Messier catalog can be seen by binoculars if you're at a dark site. So if you're out in western Texas, if you're in the middle of the prairie of the United States and it's clear, if you're in one of the random rare empty patches that's fairly dark in Europe, in anywhere in Siberia, for the most part, unless you're in like Krasnoyarsk, there's there's not much there. So as long as you're in the north and you're somewhere fairly dark, all of these objects are available for you to look at. It's interesting, though, you said, you know, northern hemisphere, right? He was operating out of France. And so there's going to be huge portions of the sky that he had no way to see. And exactly. even though there's some phenomenal parts of the sky, they're just not on the Messier catalog because he didn't right. notice them. And so they just get less publicity, unfortunately. 
Well, and, you know, Sir Patrick Moore actually worked to fix this. So there's a catalog called the Caldwell Catalog that Patrick used his mother's last name, Caldwell, when he published this catalog. I guess the Moore catalog would just sound kind of funny. But the Caldwell catalog is Sir Patrick Moore working in the 1990s to try and fix this problem. So he looked at the fact that there's 109 Messier objects, found a matching list of 109 Southern Hemisphere viewable objects, and created the Caldwell catalog that brings in all the the cool things from the Southern Hemisphere. So he has, for for instance, the jewel box nebula, 47 uh, Tucane, which is a globular cluster. Omega Centaurus, Centaurus A, all of these different objects are all tied into his catalog, allowing people to basically go back and forth between the two hemispheres and have equally biased catalogs on either side of the equator. Yeah, but or the, uh, so, you know, the people in the Southern Hemisphere, there's some love there, but you know how it goes, right? It's just like whoever gets it out there first and the name sticks and and that's why, you know, we have Messier marathons, which we're going to talk about at some point later on. Right. Okay. So he so he went through this process. He gathered together this list of all these objects so that he could discover comets. And in the end, you know, discovered, as you said, quite a few on his right. own. And then but those that, aren't his lasting legacy. His lasting legacy is this catalog of things that annoy yeah, him. Yeah. Not the comets, but in fact, the the not comets. Right. Which he didn't discover. He just put them cataloged. In, cataloged. Which well, in a few cases, he was the one who discovered them. I mean, that, that's the thing, is at the, at the time that he was working, yeah, it, it's not to say he was necessarily the first person to view all of these objects, but in several cases, he and his his uh, assistant, Metcham, were the first ones to write down these objects, which actually has led to evolving credit on this particular list, for lack of a better way to put it. When, when the catalog was first published, there were only 45 objects in it. And and then they came out with the second version that brought it up to 103 objects, one of which didn't exist, which always makes for interesting times. But if you look at it today, it's it's 110 minus one objects. And those additional objects come from folks going through his notes and realizing, wait, they discovered other things that they deserve credit for. So Nicholas uh, Flammaron in 1921 added Messier 104 after finding a a note in the margins of one of their catalogs. M105 through 107 were were added by Helen Swigger Hogg in 1947. Owen Gingrich was still adding objects in 1960. So this has been an evolving process as people go through the original documentation. And this is where archivists can play such an important role in making sure people get the right credit for the discoveries. So... It became 110 objects based on realizing, hey, wait, they, they're they the ones that discovered this. Let's make sure they get credit in their catalog for their discoveries. So, in fact, the Messier, so, so what you're saying then is then the Messier catalog lived long after Messier's life himself and yeah. other people were able to, to contribute to it. And I mean... But is it is it locked and closed down now? Is there any way that people will ever be adding things apart from, say, historical discoveries? Well, there, there's always the the possibility that someone will be going through letters, someone will be going through notebooks, and realize, 
oh, wait, here's this other thing that was discovered that we just don't have a record of. So you can never say never to something like that. But at this point, I, I think, especially after Owen Gingrich, who's an amazing astronomer and an amazing historian, after he went through all the records, I, I think we can probably close the door and new things being added. But you never know when another letter is going to be discovered. Or some other object could appear. I mean, some of the objects are are supernova remnants. And so you could imagine in the far future, you know, we'll end up with a new supernova remnant. Right. But I don't think they'll give credit to Messier for something new. No, that's true. That's true. But I wonder, you know. So that that's a new catalog. Yeah, exactly. Right. Okay. So then what kinds of objects would we find in the Messier catalog? Well, it, it's anything by definition that could, through a low power telescope or a pair of binoculars, cause an observer to go, is that a comet? So all these types of things are either stars that are so close together that their light kind of combines into a cloud or things that are actually cloudy. So we, we have open clusters like the Pleiades, globular clusters like M13 and Hercules, which is this tight little cotton ball of stars on the sky. There's planetary nebula, there's supernovae remnants, there's random nebula. So like the North American nebula is this big, beautiful red object on the sky, gas that um, has starlight passing through it and the blues get filtered out so that we see the beautiful reds. And then there's galaxies and Messier didn't even know what galaxies were, but he, he, along with Herschel, is responsible for finding some of the most beautiful ones in the sky. I mean, even up to 100 years ago, they called them nebula. I, yeah. The great nebula in, in Andromeda, right? The Less Andromeda. than 100 years Less ago. Than 100, we, were, yeah. we were still arguing, not we, but I mean, what's, what's amazing is you talk to Owen Gingrich, who's one of the oldest professional astronomers, uh, who's also done all the history work, and you ask, what's the most amazing discovery in your lifetime? And they say, galaxies. Galaxies, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what? okay, That's totally pretty amazing. new okay, perspective yeah. on yeah, everything. Yeah. <laughs> so... Yeah, the, these are, are all objects that look cloudy until you start to, to really resolve them with larger and larger telescopes. So then, you know, both you and I have done some, some visual observing. And so, you know, what are your favorite of the Messier objects? I, I have to admit, M51, the Whirlpool Galaxy, it's, it's what everyone absolutely adores. And I, I'm just a follower on this one. It's one of my favorite objects. I used the McDonald Observatory 30-inch telescope, which has a giant field of view um, to, to image this any time that I, I couldn't use the telescope for my science. So while waiting for the moon to set, I'd be out there happily observing my galaxy, trying to get a beautiful, pretty picture of it. I'm going to say that my favorite is the Ring Nebula. The Ring Nebula. Yeah. That, that one's a challenge because it's not that large on the sky. Well, it's, it's not that large, but it is, it's M57, right. It's not that large, but it actually, I was able to find it in my, I have had a little four-inch telescope growing up, and that was one of the first objects that I was able to, to find. And I think what was great about the Ring Nebula is it really looks like a little ring. With it a does. lot of the other things, as you said, you know, with the Whirlpool Galaxy, yeah, if you've got a 30-inch telescope, then then you can see, and you've got a nice long exposure, then you can see the beautiful spiral nature. But if you're just doing visual observing, looking through your eyepiece, there's not a lot of these objects that look like like what they're supposed to look like in the pictures. Right. But the Ring Nebula, for me, always really looked like a little ring floating in space. 
And then I would say the the great globular cluster in Hercules. Yeah, that that one is just it. It's harder to find than than you'd think. I I don't know how many nights I spent basically lying on my back, yeah. binoculars in one hand, planisphere in the other hand, trying. You can't look through both at once, or look at and through at once. Yeah. Um, desperately trying to star hop my way there before I found it. Right. You got to go up and yeah. You got to go up and down between these two stars on the side of of Hercules, trying to find right. Him, trying to find it. So. And then, of course, I would say the Great Nebula in Orion, which is just an absolute beautiful, clearly fuzzy bit in the sky, which is even starting to show some color, which is fairly it, rare yeah. for, for a lot of these kinds of objects. And what, what's kind of amazing is, is the sheer diversity in objects that he found. So you have everything from extremely disturbed galaxies to these beautiful classic galaxies. You have little tiny objects like the Owl Nebula, which is another one of my favorites. It's a little planetary nebula that just happens to have two darker patches that look like owl eyeballs. Absolutely. Looks like owl eyes. Absolutely. Yeah. And and it, it's just this amazingly rich way to get people engaged in astronomy by saying look at the diversity of beautiful things that we have in our field and and the name is kind of fun to play with as as a little kid and as someone who has absolutely no understanding of the french language um other than what you learned from miss piggy on the muppets which isn't useful in france i learned it it Messier, you don't see it as Messier, you see it as messier, like your messier bedroom. Mm-hmm. And as a little kid, I, I I read it that way. I thought this was the catalog of messy objects on the sky. And that's actually a really neat way to engage people. Look at what the universe has to offer. Not everything is perfect and symmetric and beautiful the way you expect the planets to be. Sometimes you have things that look like squished bugs. And then when you start to understand them, you realize they look like that because this is two galaxies that collided into one another and they literally splattered across the universe. And and this is where Messier Marathons become so interesting. Yeah, well, I was going to talk about the Messier Marathon next as well. So so what is a Messier Marathon? Well, it's it's uh, basically just like the name Marathon implies, it's a kind of an endurance mission to try and make it through all the objects. And you have to start at the moment the sun gets far enough below the horizon that you can start to pick these objects up. You need to be in the Northern Hemisphere and ideally somewhere between about 20 and 30 degrees north. So like Texas, Florida, Mediterranean area, these are these are all fairly good. Uh, Northern Africa is fairly ideal. And from these these latitudes, just as the sun sets in mid-March, you're able to start picking up the westernmost objects for that time of year at sunset. And then if you quickly flip through them through the night, you can basically hop from Messier object to Messier object. And just before the sun comes up, if you're good and you're efficient and you find things quickly you're able to to make it through the entirety of the list. Now, the problem is you hit certain areas like the Virgo cluster of galaxies or the center of the Milky Way, and there's kind of stuff everywhere. And so there's a whole lot of, uh, did I find the right thing? Did I find the wrong thing? Did I, is it? And, and so you have to try and leave time for those objects. You're not actually allowed to linger on anything. Now, there's a certain time of year that you have to do it, right? 
March. You have to it's, do it March, March, you, like very specific time. Right. And and the reason for this is is the combination of, well, in, in March, no matter where you are on the planet, you have basically 12-hour long days. And so with those basically 12-hour long days, you have just enough time to get through everything. And the other is there is somewhat of a biased east-west in when you can see objects. And it just happens to work out that in March is when you're best able to get everything up all at once between sunset and sunrise. Well, what kind of a telescope would you need? What kind of a, you know, to, to definitely complete a Messier marathon, you know, what would be the bare minimum gear that you'd want? Well, if you want to say you're definitely going to, to complete it and you don't care about cheating, I'd say anything with a go-to drive. Well, of course, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, you don't even have to look through the eyepiece. You just make, no. you know, make sure it's polar aligned and just press the button and just watch your telescope from afar and, you know, you know, <laughs> yeah, update no, so, it a hundred and whatever, nine times, eight times right. and you're done. Yeah. So personally, I consider that cheating. So if if you want to be a purist, then then I'd say you need a good star atlas, paper works, a red flashlight, and a pair of perfectly reasonable binoculars. So something with a nice seven degree field of view probably will do it for you. You don't need anything fancy. I mean, the thing to think about is this was discovered by a guy working through a refracting telescope made by hand a couple hundred years ago. Our everyday spotting scopes are way better than anything he could have imagined. Now, a nice, easy way to do this if you if you want to use a telescope is just get yourself a nice 6-inch or 10-inch uh, Dobsonian and move your light bucket around the sky gathering light. And what's neat is so many people have spent so much time into trying to figure out how to do this well and how to do this right that there's actually you search around you can find okay so do this object this right. object hop from here to here instructions on how to do this efficiently yeah you don't want to do them in order you don't start at one and no. go to two and go you know you you have to start in whatever object is is closest to the to the horizon although closest they, to setting yeah but in, in some cases the, you know the numbers are kind of similar because as he was creating his numbers he would you know there's like what is it m81 and m82 are two are galaxies side by side. They're side by side and they're in you know they're actually probably interacting in Ursa Major and so you know there's some that are connected in that way but in many cases yeah you've really got to the only possible yeah. way to do this is to follow someone's list their checklist and then you know do a few practice runs and try to make sure you know different times of the year and make sure that you can you can find these constellations and find them fairly rapidly and then when the time is ready you know get your gear and do it one of the confusing things about the Mesaic catalog is it's not ordered by type of object, so you don't find all the planetary nebula cluster together in numbers. It's not ordered numerically from east to west. It's pretty much in the order that they found things. And and so while there are pockets of numbers that, that go together, uh, the Virgo cluster stands out rather nicely. The rest of it is just kind of random. So you you just need to get yourself a map. And it's just like taking any tourist trip. You have to figure out what roads you're going to take to get from one stop to the next. So, and this is one of the things that, that we're planning. We, I don't know if people have been watching, but we've been doing these live star parties on Google+. And we've been connecting together four or five telescopes all at the same yeah. time and streaming into a Google+, Plus Hangout. And so our my 
maybe plan in March is to try and do a Messier marathon, but do it in like a couple of hours. So just right. have, you know, astronomers around the world all streaming together with their go-to telescopes and just, you know, just knock it off, get a world record. Well, and, and the thing is, we can seriously cheat because we can get observers that are spanning six hours oh, apart yeah. across the planet and always get them at zenith. Absolutely. So we just yeah. wait for the objects to be in the ideal spot in the sky and then we check them off of our list. Yeah, Now exactly. that's totally cheating. We we will not earn any certificates for completing a Mesier <laughs> Marathon doing this. Are there certificates that you get? There are, know. actually. Really? Okay. So, yeah, the Astronomical League uh, has put together certificates for how you observe and how many you observe in a given night. I, I tried really hard to get my Mesier certification with binoculars when I failed. <laughs> I, I got lost in Sagittarius and couldn't differentiate from one object to the next before I got called off to go do something else. That's cool. I, I would like to do that some year. I, so then, like, if people really want to just do it, pair of binoculars, sky, sky chart, what would you yeah. say, you know, if you want to start discovering your Messier objects? And then you don't have to do it in one night, you know, because, no. you know, different, t different parts of the sky will be visible at different times of the year and you'll have the optimum times to do it. And you can just kind of pick away at it segment yeah. by by segment there's a uh, um, on universe today tammy uh, plotner used to do a messier week and so she would recommend that you just take a course of a week to chip away at a messier marathon and just you know instead of trying to kill yourself in one night so so but then but then gear i just want to talk about that just last thing if people want to start doing this and really see the messier objects and identify them you said sort of what seven like seven by 35 binoculars maybe a little better than that right I, I think 10 by 40s 10 by 40? Is, is what I'd go for. Okay. The the larger the the front aperture you can get, the better. 50, 60, just increase that number in until they get too heavy to, to hold. So bare minimum equipment is a good atlas. They make them online, yeah. which saves time and energy. Just make sure that whatever you're using has a red mode so you don't blow your dark adaption. Nice pair of binoculars. And then I use, we have one of those hammocks on a stand in our backyard. And, and so I'm up off the ground and comfortable nested in my hammock unless the dog decides to join me, in which case we swing a little bit violently. Yeah, binoculars pointed yeah, skyward. lawn chair, something like that. Something that allows you to lie down and be comfortable without the creepy crawlies crawling on top of you. And the thing about the Messier objects is because they are distributed fairly consistently across the sky there there is a, a gap you can go out a couple hours after sunset every night take in a few and then just let the sky pass overhead and over the course of a year you can get to see everything yeah when it's highest in the sky and easiest to view yeah so break it up don't don't yeah. get in such a rush and all you Southern Hemisphere people, Caldwell Catalog. Caldwell Catalog, yeah. Caldwell Marathon. Caldwell Messier Marathon. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Pamela. It's, it's my pleasure, Fraser. This has been Astronomy Cast, a weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos. Show notes and transcripts for every episode are available on our website. Check it out at astronomycast.com. You can send us any comments, questions, or feedback to info at astronomycast.com. We read every email. The show is a nonprofit educational resource provided by Fraser Kane and Dr. Pamela Gay. We're supported through the kind donations of listeners like you. If you enjoy AstronomyCast, why not give us a donation? It helps us pay for bandwidth, transcripts, and show notes. 
Just click the donate link on the website. All donations are tax deductible for U.S. taxpayers. You can support the show for free, too. Write a review or recommend it to your friends. Every little bit helps. Click support the show on our website to see some suggestions. To subscribe to the show, point your podcatching software at astronomycast.com slash podcast.xml or subscribe directly from iTunes. Music is provided by Travis Searle. The show was edited by Preston Gibson. Astronomy Cast is produced at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville with generous support from Universe Today.